Welcome back, Brown Girls. Thanks for joining us today. Last episode, I spoke with Madeline Milka, the CEO of APAX, the Asian Pacific American Institute for Congressional Studies. If you missed it, go check it out. Today, we are talking with Jess Morales Raquetto. She is the political director for the National Domestic Workers Alliance. If you don't know what a domestic worker is, the fact is you come in contact with them. They are elder care workers, they are nannies, they're people that we come in contact with constantly in our lives, but they are not guaranteed the same rights as other workers in this country. I hope you really enjoy this conversation. Jess, thank you so much for joining us today. We are extremely excited to have you on the podcast. Oh my goodness, I'm so happy to be here. You know I'll do anything for you, Ashanti. Oh, that's how I feel about you. Our first question is, I know you from the political world. I just adore you. I admire you. When did you first learn that you loved politics? To be honest, I was a really small child. Um, I actually remember... I have two like early political memories. One is Hillary Clinton giving um, the speech in Beijing, China in 1995, where she kind of says the famous phrase, women's rights are human rights. And I was quite young in 1995, but I literally, I, to this day, I could tell you what her hair looked like, what earrings she was wearing, the color of her suit. like, And I really, really remember just feeling so... Like, I, 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 I truly remember like, getting chills listening to her give that speech. I was like a, a child, like a very young child. Um, and then the second one is the presidential debates between Al Gore and George Bush. And I was a little bit older then, but still pretty young um, and like elementary school age, I think. And I remember my mom sent me to my room because I supported Al Gore and she was mad at me for supporting a Democrat because we were really, she's really, really religious and really, really traditional. And so she did not support Democrats. And she, I was like, well, that guy's clearly the one who's right. Like he's the, he's saying the right stuff. I was young. And, um, and she was like, no, go to your room until you can like come to your senses and support. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, don't talk back to me. And that was sort of the beginning of like, rabble rousing for the rest of my life. Oh my gosh, I love it so much. And it's interesting because most people, they do have those moments that really define when they knew, okay, I love politics. So when did you decide that you wanted to turn your passion for politics into a career in politics? That was also when I was very young. So as a child, I, um, I was like a voracious reader. I was a total bookworm. I read all the time, any chance I could get. And my my family, as I said, was very traditional and very religious. So they really restricted what I could read. So we were allowed to read the Bible and we were allowed to read um, like historical books, basically, because those were considered like appropriate for a kid. Um, and so I read a lot about the civil rights movement. I read a lot about um, upstanders, so people who protected Jewish folks during the Holocaust. And I read a lot about like the suffragette movement and women getting the right to vote. It really spoke to me the idea that there were people in the world who saw something that was wrong, 
wanted to change it and did everything that they could to fight for justice or get equality or stand up against the government when it was like not acting in the best interests of its citizens. That really, really, really resonated me with me from a young age because a lot of it was because of my really religious upbringing. We grew up very, very Catholic. I went to Catholic school. My mom taught Sunday school. I did my confirmation. You know, we went to church multiple times a week. Just really, our church was down the street from our house. Like It was just a very, very big part of my life. We did a family devotional every morning. We did Bible studies on Tuesdays. And so religion was just a very, I would say it was like the driving force in my life until I left for college. You know, if you read the Bible, particularly if you're Catholic, there's a, there's a, the concept of social justice was introduced to me as a child because Catholic social justice teaching talks about how we have to center the most marginalized and the most um, oppressed. It talks about how we have to seek justice. Um, It talks about how we are, as people of faith, we are obligated to take action um, because that's how we are called to God's service. And so I kind of laugh, like the words like oppressed, marginalized, the most vulnerable, all that stuff I literally was talking about in my religion classes when I was like in middle school. And so it's so funny, like now that being woke is like really in vogue because Truly, I was learning about that as like a teenager, um, as a part of my religious education. I love that because when people ask me all the time how religion is spirituality, how does that play a role in me being involved in politics? And like it plays a big role because the beliefs that I have, they come from what I believe spiritually. There's a direct connection. I think a lot about being called to community organizing as a profession to me is an expression of my faith. I think of community organizing as, I'm totally going to cry. Um, I think of community organizing as sacred. It, it, it is, I, I do believe that in the same way that some people are called to the ministry, that I am called to the work of community organizing and that this is the work that I am, was put on this earth to do. Oh, I love it. And I know there are so many people who are listening right now who have connected with what you said from the community organizing part, from the religious part. You worked on Hillary Clinton's historic campaign in 2016. Jess's digital game is amazing. If y'all are not following her on Twitter, you are missing out. I'm always retweeting her because I was just like, speak it, truth, (laughs) everything you do. And I also love the fact that you are in that role because you don't see a lot of women in those roles. You don't see a lot of young women in those roles. This is the way I think about it, just to keep it all the way 100, which, you know, I can, that's all I know how to do. I really do think about it. Like when I look around, I don't see that many people like me with my life experience or that look like me or that are Latina or, you know, or that are young, whatever. And I just feel like if I don't, make the most of that opportunity, then what did I even do all this work for? Because it was hard. It was hard to get here. It was not easy. (laughs) It was not easy. And, you know, when I encounter like, you know, some cocky white dude who's trying to tell me how to do my job, even though I know he doesn't have as much experience as I do and he's not as smart as me, Mm -hmm. I, I, (laughs) mm -hmm, I do 
kind of look at him and I don't always tell it to him because I don't need to, but there are a lot of people like him. And there is usually most of the time only one of me. And it says something to me that I made it there. And it says very little to me about him that he made it there. And so it that gives me confidence and strength and courage because I know that I am exceptional. That is why I was able to make it when the others weren't able to make it. That is why he should listen to me because I had to squash all kinds of hymns so that I could stand in that place. And there, there for me, there is so much like liberation in that realization because instead of feeling like I'm an imposter or like I need to put my head down so that they won't notice that I'm there, right? It's just like, no, I actually need to step fully into my power so that not only so that they understand who they're dealing with, but also so that hopefully the next time it's easier for the next person like me, you know, just the person who's not always represented Um, because I don't want it to be like that forever. In fact, I don't want it to be like that tomorrow. Oh, just what you said, 100, because something that we explore all the time on the BGG is being the only brown girl in the room. And for so many people, when we talk about that, they think that we're lying because it's 2019 and politics is so diverse and it is not. There Mm -hmm. are still rooms today where I am the only black woman or woman of color or young woman. I'm the only one with a political director title. Mm -hmm. We are all so far and few in between Mm -hmm. that those realities still exist. And I think this is why you and I just clicked so well, which you said about us being there in those rooms alone. It is hard a lot of the times, the majority of the times, but you're doing it so those after you don't have to struggle the way that you did. It really is about making it better for those that come after you. Yeah. You know, and I think too, like, to me, it's also important. Like, I will not be anyone's token. I'm nobody's token. Speak on that. Let's talk about that. (laughs) You know, I think sometimes they're, I'm smart. Yep. I know what you're trying to do. You want to put me, you want me to check a box or solve an optical problem so that you can say there was one of us there. So, or so that you have someone to blame when something goes wrong. It, you know, it's theirs if it was good, it's mine if it was bad, right? And I want to, I want everyone to be clear that when I walk in a room, it's from a place of power and that I'm not there to check anybody's box or to listen and learn. I am there because I have something to offer. And my uniqueness is one of, is not the only thing I have to offer. My identity is not the only thing I have to offer. I am a skilled strategist. I am a proven, you know, operative. So that is the first reason that you should listen to me. And the second reason that you should listen to me is I don't look like anybody else around this table. So not only do I have the same skills that you all do around the table, but probably better and and probably more experienced, I for sure 
am bringing a perspective that you are not capable of bringing because I'm a woman, because I'm young, because I'm Latina. And so that actually should mean my opinion should weigh twice as much. Yes. Yes. I totally agree with that. And we're recording this a few days after this whole college cheating scandal broke, and it has opened up these conversations across people of color about how you went to a university and people are making you feel like you didn't belong, though you had the GPA, you actually played the sports, you wrote the great essay, and then you're amongst people who literally didn't have the same credentials, ability, knowledge, know-how as you. They just had the money to pay and buy that influence. And it just really had me thinking, too, about just being in politics where, let's be frank, there's a lot of people who are in that room because they are related to donors or they just knew the right person. Whereas for people of color, especially women of color, you have to hustle, grind, and work your way up to the top. Nothing is handed to you. Quite the opposite. Sometimes I'm like, I know I'm more qualified. I know like I'm more experienced. I know that I you know, should have gotten that job. And I, I think, I think in reference often the sort of phrase like, you know, twice as hard for half as much. And one of the things that I really think about is like, I'm not here for half. I'm here for like the whole thing and then some, and I will be damned if somebody thinks that they can give me half and I will settle for it. Like I haven't settled for literally anything in my life. I'm not about to start today. And, and I also think like, I, I don't take pride in how hard it's been. Like, I don't want it to be hard for everybody. I don't want, you know, it to always be only one of us. And so, you know, that, that leads me to do a lot of things like hire really diverse, take on, um, you know, programs that people think are too hard or too expensive because of the type of people that you're trying to organize. It's made me Honestly, it's made me talk about things even when I was afraid to talk about them or felt like or felt like I was too junior or maybe it would put, you know, make people think differently about me or put me at risk in some way because I am always, always aware of who I'm representing, whether I like it or not. Sometimes I wake up and I just want to represent me. <laughs> like <laughs> It would be easier. All those white guys around the table, they get to just represent them. But I know that I represent the next person and that if I don't do well, there won't be another one. And that if I don't speak up, that won't there won't be enough space for that next person to speak up. And so, you know, I, I do really feel like in my day-to-day, I'm extremely aware of what a privilege it is, but also what a responsibility it is. And that makes me, honestly, it makes me really do my very, very best because I'm I'm really aware of how critical my success is because it means way more than my own individual success. Yes, there's just so much to unpack there. Again, just telling all the truth. (laughs) But one of the points that I want to talk about is someone asked me the other day with, you know, how do I constantly just move diversity, equity, inclusion forward? And I told them when I got my current position that I'm in now, 
I'm just very aware of the things that I have power and control over. Say it. And then Mm -hmm. that is where I will move things. If I have control over this in the budget, if I have control over this in a program, over how a state looks, then I am going to make sure that it is representative of the people in that state. That has to be the ethnic, the racial, the socioeconomic, LGBTQ, disability. We have to bring everyone to the table And if I know that I'm able to do that, I'm absolutely going to do it because there have been positions in the past where I didn't have that power. I didn't have that control. And I was just, well, I'm just very junior. It's not my role to speak up. And then when I did move up the ladder or more, I would speak up, but it still wasn't in those ways where you do feel, okay, am I putting myself at risk of losing my job? which is something other people don't have to think about when they speak up. So for me, it is very much that I cannot be in this position right now and not do everything in my power to make sure that everyone is represented. Yeah. Oh, man, I could talk. I mean, as I do, like, should we do like a three part episode on this? Like, Look, I, I feel this. like this is also going to have a bonus episode component because <laughs> I still have so many more questions and we're still on like my top ones. <laughs> I would say, okay, let me get my, my quick hits on this one. Okay, here's my number one thing. The number one thing that I want, you know, like BBG listeners to know is. If you don't start speaking up or trying to move resources or attempting to move program when you're just starting out, you're not going to magically like get promoted to senior director and then you'll be able to do everything that you wanted. It's a practice. It's a muscle that you develop of understanding how to introduce new ideas to people, of understanding how to influence budget and strategic decision making. And that stuff actually has to start when you're a junior employee because then by the time that you're a senior employee and you have the chance to like determine the budget and set the targets and hire all the people, you know how to do it. And I think that sometimes, especially as women and especially as women of color, it can feel like there will be a point where like the magical utopia of diversity and inclusion will get unlocked. And that's just not how it works. Or that some magical good work fairy will tap you on the shoulder and be like, I see you. You've been grinding with your head down and now the good fairy will reward you. It doesn't work like that. It just, it just doesn't. So I feel like it's really important for us to step out and really live in our power and our courage as often as possible. Because then by the time we have to make really courageous choices, right? And fight for like, I think that we will win the election if we do X, but not Y. You know, like that's courage. That's being like, I be- like I'm willing to stake an election, my reputation, money, people's lives on that decision. You don't, you don't like get that just because you got a director title. You get that because when you were when you didn't have their director title, you were also willing to talk about that. And then I think the other one is, you know, people call me a lot for like, can you give me advice on diversity or can you give me advice on on inclusion? And the first thing that I tell all of those people is call me back after you called me about my strategy expertise 
and about my skills because I am not your diversity and inclusion expert. I just happen to be a woman of color who prioritizes this because I recognize that this is a problem, but I, it is not my job to solve this for you. What I'm happy to talk to you about is how you build a badass political program, how you mobilize millions of people, like how you can make different kinds of strategic choices as an organization. And you should be calling me first for that. And then you may get the privilege of my advice on diversity and inclusion. Yes, I agree with you on that so much because we are very outspoken on this. People are, oh, I'll just call Jess. Oh, I'll call Ashanti and they'll tell me what to do and how to fix it. Mm -hmm. Like, no, first. And also, first of all, my advice is not free. Say it. (laughs) Say it. My advice is not free. (laughs) Yes. And I struggle with this too sometimes. Like even now I really struggle with like asking for what I'm worth and being real about saying to people like, actually, like here's my hourly rate. If you want to get on the phone and pick my brain for an hour, here's how much it costs. Partly because of what we was talking about earlier. Like I do think about who is behind me and opening up opportunity for them. But a thing that I have realized is, you know, I used to I used to say yes always. When I was younger, that was my number one rule, say yes always. And it it works. It works. You know, it it created so much opportunity and that at that stage in my career, that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to make relationships and create opportunities. At this stage in my career, when I say yes to everyone, I'm saying no to myself. I'm saying no to my dreams or my goals, my time. And my time is really valuable. And so if I want to accomplish what I have to do in this, you know, work that I'm doing now and move to the next stage of my career, I have to say no. And that's like, I'm still not good at it. I'm still learning. Um, But I feel like that's for me the, the sort of like next big like work that I am trying to do is really learn how to say no so that I can say yes to myself. Oh, I agree with you so much. And that is something I feel that as women in general, we're conditioned to the fact that you always have to say yes. You should be so glad that I'm asking you and I want to give you this opportunity and that you get to sit beside me and learn. And it's no, it doesn't always have to be Yes. And I remember the first time someone who I really respect asked me to do something. And as much as I want to say yes, I said no, because it meant that I wouldn't be able to do the thing that I was actually hoping to do because it conflicted with the date, the time that they had. Mm -hmm. And it does become easier over time. And I want to pivot back to, I told y'all, Jess has a great Twitter account. And you tweeted one day, you know, what type of boss do you like? You know, what type of boss, you know, would you want to be? And I remember I replied back that for me, I always strive to be the boss that I wanted when Mm -hmm. I was in positions. Mm -hmm. And that does also have to do with the fact that my team is all women of color. I -hmm. have some young women of color, not only on my team, but in our office And I want to set an example for them about Mm -hmm. 
when is it okay to say no? When is it time to speak your mind? Mm-hmm. You know, I think I think about that often because, you know, sometimes um, I sort of am known for like always kind of speaking my mind and not being afraid to like really go in and kind of go there. And when I was young, I've always been like that, even when I had no power. <laughs> and I've always thought about it as being honest and telling the truth. And in my experience, there has never been a long-term negative consequence for telling the truth that wasn't overcome by the positive that came out of telling the truth. And to me, that has always like really emboldened me because I used to be like, I'm worried about what will happen. And then I like the worst happened and it, it turned out I didn't care about that. Oh, that really powerful person like will never hire me because they think that like I talk too much about diversity and inclusion or, you know, I'm too opinionated. I don't want to work for that person. Right. They, like they wouldn't if they don't want an opinionated person who cares a lot about diversity and inclusion, then they don't want me. And. I think once I started realizing that I was forging my own path, I wasn't trying to follow in anybody's footsteps. It made me realize that there were times where I would have to kind of put myself out there or um, go against advice that I had gotten or do something differently than, you know, the traditional kind of steps that people take. And Once I realized that I was doing my own thing, it enabled me to look around and observe and and learn from and take advice, but understand that I was the only person who knew how to go down the road that I'm trying to make. Yes. And for me, and I know for you too, that's just growth. I personally love yes. growth, becoming a better person, striving to be that ideal in my head. And that does mean, oh, that person, they're really powerful. People think they're great. But, you know, I now have a different opinion of you. And I actually don't need you in mm-hmm. order to do the things that I want to become the person that I want. And I feel there's just something so liberating when you get to that moment in your political career and you're just chucking deuces and just walking away. You just yes, don't care. It's like, <laughs> it's good. See you later. <laughs> Peace out. Yes, a hundred percent. You know, and like, I think to me, it's not about, I think sometimes people like turn that into beef, you know, and to they me, it's do. actually, it's not about beef. Like it's, it's about, I really do believe that it takes all kinds to kind of get to the mountaintop. And, you know, there are many ways to get to the mountain. The way that I am going may not be the way that you're going, but I'm going to let you do your thing. And actually, I don't have the time or space to worry about that because what I'm trying to do has never been done before. Mm -hmm. And so I really have to focus on me. I really have to. And I don't, I don't, I think sometimes, like, especially as women, we think about that almost as like selfish. And I don't think it's selfish because if I am successful at what I'm trying to do, build powerful political force out of domestic workers, out of women of color, that will change our country. And again, it goes back to like, I believe that this work is sacred. And so you have to treat sacred work with the respect 
and commitment that it deserves. No, just 100. Absolutely. Oh, I'm just enjoying this conversation so much. I feel that we could literally just talk about this for hours. So (laughs) I do want to move on because you have, again, just been outspoken and rightfully so about so many of the atrocities that are coming out of the Trump administration as -hmm. they pertain to people of color, women of color. And you actually lead the Families Belong Together campaign. And I remember when I saw it announced, and I wasn't surprised that you were heavily involved with it, because we do need voices like yours at the forefront. So tell us a little bit more about that campaign and how the people listening can support its efforts. Families Belong Together was started in the summer of 2018 uh, at the height of the crisis that the Trump administration created when they adopted a zero-tolerance policy at the border. That policy changed our previous immigration policy to prosecute every single person who came to the border like a criminal. That includes parents and children. And what that meant was that families um, were denied their legal right to asylum and then put into detention and separated. So parents and children were not put together. It led to thousands of children that we know of and potentially thousands more. Children as young as two or three months old, being separated from their parents. To this day, children remain separated from their parents and even the families that have been reunited, those children suffer long-term emotional trauma as a result of the Trump administration's policies. Um, And we just felt like at the National Domestic Workers Alliance where I work and that houses the Families Belong Together Coalition, that it was unacceptable for this policy to result in that kind of long-term impact and that it was our responsibility to do something about it. When we found out actually about um, kind of the extent of the separations, I was actually taking um, a vacation and I was in Italy because my little sister was graduating from college. She went to school abroad and I text my boss and I said, okay, I know I'm on vacation, but we're going to miss the moment. And, And this is like this is like a historic, terrible moment in American history and we have to fix it. So I text her like a bunch of ideas that night. I said, okay, I have to go. The graduation ceremony is starting, but like, let me know what happens. And then a few days later, I came back from my vacation and I landed at eight o'clock on Thursday. And on Friday morning, we were having dozens of events around the country to protest family separation. And that was kind of the first day that we did a national day of action. By the time um, June 30th came around, we had in one day mobilized over 750 rallies all around the country in towns as big as Chicago and as small as Antler, North Dakota, population like I think 25. Wow. To mobilize in their community locally and say that they did not support the Trump administration's family separation policy. Within six weeks, we had forced the Trump administration and President Trump to reverse the zero tolerance policy. And, you know, what that really taught me is you can be successful, but 
that doesn't mean that the problem is fixed. So we found out, um, we've known this all along, but we really have evidence of thousands more families that have been separated at the border since the reversal of the zero tolerance policy. And we know that every single day, the Trump administration continues to separate families. That has uh, made us transition the work of Families Belong Together, which was supposed to be a short-term project, into a long-term campaign until every, until we no longer practice family separation and family detention in the United States. We think that this is about more than an immigration issue. It's actually about who we are as a country and whether or not we believe in basic human rights for children, for families, and for anyone um, who is trying to cross the border. A little can go a long way. That is why it's crucial we believe in small dollar donors. Over the course of 2017 and 2018, they gave more than $1.6 billion to campaigns and organizations through ActBlue's platform. That's because ActBlue makes online giving easy and secure. ActBlue's simple and powerful digital fundraising tools empower donors and enable campaigns and organizations, big and small, to flourish. Candidates and organizations using ActBlue know that they're using the best. As a nonprofit and a tech organization, ActBlue does rigorous A-B testing and its tools are optimized for mobile. Plus, ActBlue is always working to improve its offerings. ActBlue is the online fundraising platform of choice for thousands of Democratic campaigns and progressive organizations. Special thanks to ActBlue for their support of this first season of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. ActBlue is responsible for the content of this advertising. So I love everything that the NDWA stands for. And you had talked about the defining moment for you when you knew you wanted to go into politics. And for me, my defining moment actually does have to do with domestic workers and hotel workers being from Las Vegas. So long story short, two men were running for Senate. One of them voted to raise the minimum wage. One of them didn't, and I really cared about the minimum wage because I did have young friends who worked to support their families, being from Las Vegas, a union state, lots of hotels. My mom, she worked for the local hospital, so when I visited her, I saw all the time people who were taking care of other people. And it really bothered me that here was someone with power thinking that domestic workers didn't deserve equal rights. And the last time I saw you in person, we were in Atlanta, Georgia in 2018 on election night, and you all ran a phenomenal campaign for Stacey Abrams' gubernatorial race, you know, rallying domestic workers and engaging them. And there had been nothing done like this before in Georgia. Mm -hmm. So tell us about that campaign and the work that you are doing across the U.S. Yeah, you know, I would say it was almost like, um, it was almost serendipitous that Stacey Abrams was running for governor. Had she been elected, she would have been the first black female governor in the history of American politics. 
And she is from Georgia. And Georgia is actually kind of the birthplace of the domestic worker movement. Um, Our movement is born out of the legacy of a woman named Dorothy Bolden. And she's kind of like the most important civil rights hero that you've never heard of. She was, I, I kid you not, the neighbor of Dr. Martin Luther King. And she went up to him and she told him, you know, I really believe in what you're saying about the poor people's campaign and, and work and dignity for, for black workers. And that's why we really need to organize domestic workers. So what are we going to do about domestic workers? And he told her, sounds like you should organize domestic workers. <laughs> and so she said, yes. Um, and she organized the Atlanta washerwomen and domestic workers um, in the 60s and uh, did a like historic washerwoman strike that I mean, you know, she uh, just she's just she just she's just incredible, incredible, incredible person. You got to go look her up. Her name is Dorothy Bolden. She's amazing. She um, to join uh, the National uh, Domestic Worker Union that she ran. You had to have a registration card. Uh, a voter registration card, and you had to pay dues. And so in some ways, uh, doing the domestic worker political program in Atlanta, in Georgia, for Stacey Abrams was almost like a, a, a continuation of the work of Dorothy Bolden and the origins, the roots of our movement. Um, and we really felt like it was important in this moment for this candidate in that location to go just as hard as we could to make sure we did everything possible to elect Stacey Abrams as governor. Um, we ran one of the largest programs in Georgia for Stacey Abrams. And, you know, I, I like to quote Stacey in this. She calls it, um, she says, she didn't say she lost because she didn't lose. She calls it a not win. And I think that's right. Um, that election was stolen from Stacey Abrams because of voter suppression. Part of what we did was train domestic workers as canvassers, as media spokespeople, um, as voter protection organizers, because we really believe that taking power at the ballot box as donors, as volunteers, as voters is the next step in building domestic worker power. Um, You know, we have passed Bill of Rights in eight states. We are introducing this year a federal Bill of Rights for domestic workers. Um, But we really want to put domestic workers at the front of the new face of the political power. And that's not just uh, as the people that you see at the front of the rally, but also the people making the decisions and talking to the voters. Because we really believe that if domestic workers among the most marginalized, the most exploited, the most vulnerable in our society— are able to gain political power, then everyone will benefit. So true. And I do want to talk a little bit more about the National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. And because I think most people don't realize is that domestic workers, they don't have the same legal rights afforded to other workers. Like they would get paid sick days, regular scheduling and retirement benefits, Those things that we take for granted and think that everyone has, these amazing people who in your lifetime, you will come in contact with domestic workers and they don't have the same benefits that you do when you show up at work. 
Yeah. You know, I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that is something that really surprises people. Domestic workers are nannies, house cleaners, and elder care workers. And they really do some of the most important work um, that exists. They love and care for our children and our elders. They love and care for our home. Um, they might even be the people that cook our meals. And they are also among the most exploited workers in our economy. The average domestic worker makes between eleven and thirteen thousand dollars a year. Um, domestic workers are some of most likely to be sexually harassed at work. They're among the most likely to be human trafficked. Um, they're among the most likely uh, to experience wage theft. And even today, believe it or not, domestic workers are still excluded from federal labor protections around things like minimum wage, water breaks, time off. And that exclusion literally goes all the way back to slavery. When Southern um, legislators needed to vote for basic labor protections and they, they wouldn't do it unless they carved out domestic workers. One of the only other groups that's kind of carved out from those protections are farm workers, which is also related to the legacy of slavery. So literally the way that domestic workers are treated is related to some of the original sins of our democracy. And that's why we really need to introduce this federal bill of rights, because we want to make sure that domestic workers in 2019 have basic rights, like a right to minimum wage, a right to not be sexually harassed, a right to water breaks, a right to time off, um, basic benefits or the ability to get basic benefits. In most states, they do not have those rights. Um, so this is long overdue. How can we support your efforts? Yeah, you can go to domesticworkers.org. We have a, a ton of ways that you um, can engage with the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights, including putting your name as like a signer on the Bill of Rights. Um, and, you know, I think, too, I just want to also say, like, if you are an employer of a domestic worker, the number one thing that I like to tell people is really make sure that you're paying them at least $15 an hour and make sure that you pay them in cash. It's much better to pay them in cash. Um, and, uh, that's like the, that's the basic bare minimum, you know? Uh, but as we introduce this bill in Congress, we really need more co-sponsors on the bill. Uh, so the bill will get introduced probably in the next few months and then we'll be, um, getting co-sponsors on the bill, um, this summer. And so it will be very helpful if, your listeners would call um, whoever represents them in Congress and let them know you want them to be a co-sponsor on the Bill of Rights. Oh, all right. We got to get on it, listeners. We got to make sure that we get this bill passed. Yes, ma'am. So talking about domestic workers, I saw a statistic that said there's approximately 70 million domestic workers around the world. And a lot of people did become familiar with domestic workers because of the Oscar-nominated movie Roma. And we see a woman of indigenous Mexican heritage as the central character. So for people who have seen the movie, what are you hoping that they take away from it? Like the real life lessons and not just this amazingly produced film. Yeah, you know, I think the significance of Roma is really so important because um, it's not only a movie about a domestic worker or about an indigenous woman. It's also a movie where the domestic worker is the hero, um, where you see her kind of interior life 
um, where you're exposed to her work. And often in our society, domestic workers are invisible. And part of what we're trying to do at NDWA is make domestic workers and their work visible. You know, your house didn't become magically clean um, and your children aren't like in a closet somewhere while you're working. You know, they're being cared and loved for. Um, and, and so to me, that's really the power of such an important movie being seen all around the world because it was introducing people to domestic workers for the first time. And it was saying that their work is valuable, that their work is important, and that they are the heroes in our lives. Um, and, you know, that rings true to me. The domestic workers that I know are, I feel like they're, they're totally superhero, Captain Planet, you know, <laughs> the Avengers. They are incredible. And what they do for us and our families is something that should be you know, the kind of thing that we want up on the big screen. Yes. Oh, so true. It's such a great, powerful movie. If you haven't seen it, please watch it. We have one final question for you, Jess. What advice do you have for the brown girls that are out there listening saying, I want to be just like her? You know, I think that it's really important to remember that it doesn't happen overnight. I've been working I have been grinding hard for a really long time to get to where I am. And I'm pretty young. You know, I'll probably work for another 20 or 30 years before I retire, if I ever retire. And when I was younger, you know, I used to I used to just like always, I always wanted more. I always wanted something else. And I think that's part of the secret to my success. But I also think it's really important to remember that your career is really a long game. And so it's okay if this year you don't have the job you want or even next year you don't have the job that you want. Because what I found is, you know, in every job and every experience, I my job was to learn as much as possible and to try to be as successful as possible. And when I focused on those two things, honestly, stuff that I couldn't even imagine happening happened so I, I would say just work hard and be patient. And that doesn't mean you're not going to go after opportunities or really be ambitious, but like don't, you don't need it all fast because there's such a long career ahead of you. And you probably, you probably don't even know all of the ways that you're going to really make an impact and, and leave a legacy. Um, and so you don't, you don't want to rush that. Oh, that is such strong, sound advice. Thank you so much, Jess. Listeners, make sure you go to the National Domestic Workers Alliance website to support the amazing work that they're doing with their bills in Congress, the Family Belongs Together campaign. There's just so much that we need to do to support this amazing organization and the women like Jess who are there. Thank you so much, Jess. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This was so fun. I really appreciate it. I had a lot of it. fun too. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jess and that you have a newfound appreciation for the work of domestic workers and that you will do everything that you can to help support them. Make sure that you visit the National Domestic Workers Alliance website to keep updated on their work and make sure that you follow the Families Belong Together campaign 
that justice spearheading to ensure that we are doing everything possible to keep families from being separated and reuniting those that have been separated.